to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Hello, this is Adam Carswell, the host of Dream Chasers, and you're tuned in to the How Do They Do It Real Estate Podcast. If you like this show, first of all, you have phenomenal taste. Second of all, if you want to listen to another next level show like this, just click our link in the description and smash that subscribe button. It would be an honor for us to enrich your mind, body, and soul as well. Welcome everyone to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Pratt. And today we are joined by Warren Dresner, who's the managing partner and co-founder of Equity Yield Group, where they have over $200 million of assets under management, and they focus on purchasing institutional grade multifamily assets in great markets, source qualified and managed by an experienced team. So Warren, thank you so much for being on the show today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. So Warren, can you share with us a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate? Sure. Well, I'm from Australia originally. I've moved around the world a little bit, lived in Europe for a while. I'm on my second stint in the US. I moved to Miami just over three years ago, Miami, Florida. I had a long corporate background in finance and insurance. I started investing in real estate in 2010, buying some single family homes. And really the driver for that was tax benefits at the time. I was looking for something to offset my W-2 income. The tax is kind of what got me into real estate. I then discovered the power of passive income. I feel like I neglected that for so long and then really tried to accelerate my real estate investing to build up that passive income. So from single family homes, I moved into multifamily as a passive investor, acting as an LP in a number of syndications. And then around 2019, started to be more active in the space as well. Got it. So when you started buying your real estate in 2010, was it primarily in Australia or the US markets? Back then, it was all in Australia. Australia is kind of like the coast. I think it's like California or New York. It's very expensive. It's hard to get real estate to cash flow. So I built up equity, which was great. But as soon as I discovered multifamily in the US, we basically liquidated all of that single family stuff to free up the equity, and then put that to work in cash flowing assets in the US. So I'd love to ask you and get your perspective also being from Australia and now also being in the US market. How is those two different markets in terms of real estate really differentiating from each other? And how is it different? There are so many ways it's different. (laughs) I was really excited when I came back to the US because I knew that there was so much opportunity in real estate in the US. In the US, you can invest across the whole country. You can you know, find investment in states in the middle of the country where people actually live and people work, prices are relatively cheap and cash flow is good. That doesn't exist in Australia. Australia is very much a coastal. I mean, the landmass is as big as the US, but there are 25 million people living in the whole country. So there are a couple of big cities around the coasts. That's where all the jobs are. That's where all the people are. And real estate is just overpriced. So they they differ completely. Even the lending environment is very different. You know, in the US, we've got Freddie and Fannie Mae who offer fixed rate, 30 year debt. In Australia, everything's variable rate. It's a completely different environment. And actually, the concept of multifamily doesn't really even exist in Australia. When developers build these big communities in Australia, they sell them as condos, sell off individual units, individual owners. So the concept of multifamily 
doesn't exist there. And it's a really powerful thing. And I think it's a great industry. I wish that it existed in Australia. If it didn't exist in Australia, how did you come across multifamily in the United States? Like I said, I was really excited when I came back to the US and started looking at where there are opportunities. I started reading lots of books, listening to podcasts. I think I stumbled onto bigger pockets. And just from doing all that research and reading and listening to what other people are doing, I heard people talking about multifamily. And it made so much sense. The scalability of it, it's very powerful. And I can't remember specifically where I heard of it first, but it must have been just through that continuous education that I was putting myself through. So when you decided to get into multifamily, what were some of the things that you started to evaluate first in terms of markets and the properties itself to determine whether or not you wanted to get into those types of opportunities and what made it look good for you guys? I think I was trying to find as many no resources to help me with all of that stuff. So I remember I stumbled on Neil Bauer and some of his shortcut methods for finding good markets. So I learned from him about population growth and income growth and those types of things. I would look online and find which cities are growing. And I started with the markets and and tried to figure out where things were happening. A lot of it was pointed towards the Southeast. And given that I'm based in Florida, I started focusing a lot on Florida. Really the, the attraction for me, remember I was a passive investor in the beginning. The attraction was the returns seemed to be amazing or no effort. It was very, very passive. I had the experience from the single family homes. I knew that there was effort involved. Even if you had a property manager running the property, I still had to get involved. And every now and then we'd have some big expense that would wipe out returns for months and months. So being passive investment opportunities that paid 8 or 10% cash on cash and IRRs in the teens or the high teens, that was really attractive. And, and that was really what pushed me into it or encouraged me to get more involved. And then when you decided to get more involved in and became on the active side, I know you guys had closed on a $26 million acquisition. Was that the first one that you had done as a GP or? I was a co-GP on another deal before that, but that was the first one that me and my partner Ryan did together as the lead sponsors. The whole push to get more actively involved came because I was making these passive investments and I was looking at the numbers thinking, wow, this is great. In 10 or 20 years, I'm going to be able to retire And the more and more I thought about it, I thought, well, why wait 10 or 20 years? Maybe I can accelerate this financial freedom. And so that was really the push to get more actively involved. So yeah, I was co-GP on another deal in North Carolina first. And then the $26 million one, that was the first deal that Ryan and I bought together, which was would have been late 2020 when we got that one under contract. So how do you jump from being a co-sponsor on one deal and then jump into a $26 million deal as lead sponsors on the, on the next deal. How does that, how did that journey stop for you? And how did you find it? How did you fund it? Give us the details, Warren. <laughs> it's, uh, well, firstly, it, it didn't happen overnight. We were underwriting for nine months, 12 months. We probably underwrote close to 200 deals before we actually got this one. So we put in a lot of hard work leading up to it. We also, so I guess if I take a step back, this $26 million deal, it sounds like a really expensive deal. The reason we were targeting that kind of property was just because of the investment thesis that we had created. So I met Ryan in one of these mentorship groups. We had both joined the group to surround ourselves with other people who were doing multifamily to learn the business, learn how to underwrite. We were underwriting deals separately and 
we found that sometimes we'd be looking at the same deal. So we started talking to each other and referring deals to each other. And we found that we shared similar philosophies about what makes up a good deal. We were both really interested in bigger markets, not tertiary markets, but secondary markets, I'd say. Markets like Tampa and Orlando and maybe Jacksonville in Florida. We were both more attracted to the newer products as well. So A and B class buildings, not the C class stuff that's built in the 70s or the 1960s. So we were both targeting the same types of investments. And we basically, because we felt like they were lower risk investments. You know, we talk in finance, you talk about risk adjusted returns and the classic textbook value add play is to buy a C class property because you can force a lot of appreciation. Now that's true, but there's risk associated with that. If you're buying an old building, it's there's potential that the pipes or the electrical is going to need a lot of work. The buildings might be dilapidated. There might be a lot of deferred maintenance. So yeah, there's a lot of upside, but there's downside as well. So the reason we were focusing on newer products in bigger cities was we felt that there was lower risk. Quality of the buildings was better. There was less deferred maintenance. The quality of the demographics in the area tends to be better. The suburbs that these buildings are built in tend to be newer suburbs There's just, for a number of reasons, the risk is a little bit lower. So we were focusing on that type of product. Now, it's not easy to find that kind of deal. And that's probably why we looked at, you know, close to 200 deals. The other side of it is we did the math and we realized if we're going to target a big city and a newer building, it's going to be an expensive purchase. We're going to need the ability to raise $10, $12 million of equity. And we knew that we couldn't do that on our own. So we had to build strategies to figure out once we found a deal, how would we actually bring the equity to the table? So we started to build relationships with other people who could co-GP with us. But we also started to build relationships with institutions. Ryan's background's in construction. He used to build multifamily and commercial properties. He had a number of existing relationships with debt and preferred equity providers. And that was really handy. And we focused early, early on, before we ever had a deal, on building relationships with some of those guys so that when we did finally find a property, we already had that relationship and we could bring one of them to partner on the deal. And that's really kind of the secret to how we managed to to buy an expensive $26 million building on our first go. When you're looking to build a relationship with an institution, how did that look like? And how did you build up a strong relationship enough to where to the point where you were confident in bringing deals to them and for them to evaluate and to look at it and, and know that you'd be able to close on one? We use a broker, an equity broker, which I would highly recommend because they're doing transactions all the time. They've got a lot of relationships. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. You know, they've got relationship capital as well. So they could vouch for us. They could vouch for them. That was really handy in making introductions in the beginning. Like I said, Ryan had some existing relationships and he had a track record of dealing with these guys. The track record is very important. It's very hard to build a relationship without a track record. It's kind of chicken and egg. 
But once we found a few groups where it felt like we were on the same wavelength, we started including them in the underwriting process. So I think that was that was really critical. Yeah. And then as you're underwriting the deals, both sides can understand better what's the thought process behind the numbers and does it align to what you're thinking before you guys get into an actual deal together? Absolutely. And you know, that's a really important point that maybe not a lot of people think about. Not just what we want, but it's also what they want and what they are looking for. Through that process, we learned that these guys, they've got so much money at the moment. You know, everyone's talking about how much money is out there. They're looking to deploy it, but they've got an appetite for certain things. They only want to be in the bigger cities, in the major metros. They want to be in the Southeast, in places like Florida and the Carolinas. They love Texas. They don't necessarily love the states in between. They also like newer products. They love A-class buildings. They love things that are built after 1990, for instance. That only reinforced our criteria because we knew that exactly what they wanted, what their appetite was. So we knew that when we found something that fit their criteria, they were going to be more interested in partnering with us. And how do you differentiate yourselves between all the other people who are also vying for the same types of money, the institutions, and also those types of deals and everything like that as well? Uh, It's tricky. It's really hard. When we started, say two years ago, I felt like we were in a unique spot. We kind of sat a little bit above the average syndicator in terms of deal size. And we were a little bit below the average institution in terms of deal size. So that $26 million property, a lot of syndicators were looking at smaller deals and a lot of institutions were looking at, say, $50 million plus. So I felt like we had a nice little niche for a while. But that over the last couple of years, that has closed down. I think syndicators are looking at bigger and bigger deals. The institutions have so much money to deploy that they're starting to look at smaller deals as well. So it is hard to differentiate. Sometimes we come across, we're fighting for a deal against an institutional player, and it's very, very hard to beat them. I think the only thing that we can really offer is service. A lot of these institutions have big equity committees and it takes weeks and weeks to approve a deal. We can approve a deal in a day if we want to. That's really all we've got to offer. I guess we're local, potentially we're in the market already and we can provide service, but sometimes it's very hard to win these deals. And what are you looking now going forward into the future on in terms of the multifamily space? And are you continuing to be positive about the future of multifamily and, and real estate? We're looking to grow, definitely. So we had a good 2021 and we'd love to make another two to four purchases in 2020. I'm very bullish on multifamily. I think there's still a housing shortage in the country. I think people still are moving to places like Florida. Inflation helped with rents going up. It's a good time to own real estate. All of those things are positives and make me really think that multifamily is a great investment. The challenge is pricing because prices continue to go up. And not only that, but we're currently in this increasing debt environment as well. And so the cost of capital is going up. And right now, what it's late April 2022 and Prices have accelerated the last two months and the Fed has only started to increase interest rates. I'm a little worried at the moment because it feels like pricing is too high given that interest rates are going to go up in the next couple of months. We know that. So it's a weird situation right now. I'm really bullish on the sector. I want to invest more, but we struggle to find value at the moment. But having said that, you know, like I described underwriting 200 deals before we won our first one, we've always got a really low strike rate. So we're continuing to underwrite and I kind of know that with the right mindset and discipline, we'll find one eventually. So we're still underwriting. We're still looking for more deals. 
And with the current environment that you mentioned today, in terms of the interest rates and prices going up, are you changing the strategy of how you underwrite? We definitely are accounting for it. Yeah. In a number of ways. So in 2021, a lot of deals were bought with bridge debt, which is variable rate debt. If we're going to take out bridge debt on a deal today, we are definitely allowing for the increased debt costs over the whole period. We might say that today the interest rate is going to be, I don't know, 4.5%, but we're allowing for the fact that over the next few months, that 4.5% is probably going to go up to 475 and 5%. That's a big thing. We're looking closely at the cost of rate caps as well. We've always chosen to be aggressive on rate caps and buy the lowest possible cap to give ourselves certainty. But those cost a lot of money these days. Some of it could be $2 million, $3 million for a rate cap at 50 basis points. So that's something we look at and take into account in the underwriting. And then on refi, we're also kind of conservative at the moment. When lenders decide how many, like the proceeds that they want to give you for a loan, there are two ways that they define the proceeds. One is loan to value. And, you know, we've kind of been trained that we can probably get a 75% LTV from Freddie or Fannie. The other is debt service coverage ratio. And the agencies usually want debt service coverage ratio to be at least 1.25 times, something like that. We're looking really closely at that number because if interest rates are going to go up, a lot of loans are going to be constrained by the debt service coverage ratio. So when we're modeling things out, we're not assuming we're going to get a 75% loan from the agencies when we refi. We're really looking closely at the DSCR and, and maybe allowing for a lower leverage loan at refi. So it's a number of little areas where we're being conservative on the underwriting. I feel like we're missing out on deals because maybe not everyone in the market is looking at those things, but we need to kind of be prudent when we're underwriting these deals for our investors. Yeah, especially with the volatility of everything kind of happening right now. You got to put in those checks and balances in place in the event that something happens. We're seeing it right now where the rates are going up every single day. And so it's hard to do the underwriting with all these changes happening in place, but you've got to be as conservative as you can. And if the deal doesn't make sense at a certain point, you just have to be willing to walk away at it sometimes. Absolutely. With underwriting, I think it's a science and an art. You've kind of got to know when to be aggressive and Right now, I feel like it's not the time to be aggressive on the debt side because there is so much uncertainty. One area where we try to be a little bit more aggressive is maybe on the rent side, given we're looking at deals in markets that we know really well because we're already owners. We feel like we've got some good insight into how far rents can be pushed. So given that local knowledge, that's one area where maybe we can be intelligently aggressive. But on the debt side, I... I don't think anyone can really predict what's going to happen. So it's not really the place to be aggressive right now. So with everything that you've learned here in the United States and purchased so many different multifamily properties and continue to underwrite, do you see yourself taking any of this or utilizing any of this to go and do something back in Australia as well? Or are you just continuing in the US? I think a big focus is in the US. Who knows about Australia? It's not a great cash flowing market. It's, it's not a great investment right now. Who knows in the future? I think it's diversification is important. So while I love multifamily, at some stage, I got to think about diversifying into other asset classes. And maybe one day in retirement, it'd be nice to have a, a second home out there or a base and go and visit family and friends. We'll see. 
So do the people around your network or who are still in Australia, who are also Australian as well, are they curious about what you're doing too within the States and, and how you've been able to build up this model in the United States where we're not able to do that in Australia? Yeah, they are really curious because the opportunity doesn't exist in Australia. Yeah, they find it really interesting. I've tried to find some investors in Australia. That's a little bit challenging because there's a foreign exchange risk, which can potentially wipe out all of the returns. You know, the foreign exchange markets are really volatile as well. They find it really interesting because they don't get the benefits of this type of industry in Australia. And for you, what are you most excited for? What are you looking to focus on in the upcoming future here? We want to scale the business. We would love to get a billion dollars of assets under management in the next three to five years. I think we're going into a tough environment at the moment, but there are always opportunities. In every stage of the cycle, there are opportunities. So we're in it for the long run. It's real estate's a get rich slow scheme. So we like to just keep building and building and really build up a legitimate institutional sized business. And how has real estate investing impacted your life? I think the power of passive income is incredible. I think I've always had a W-2 job with this stable income coming in where I was trading time for money. Real estate has really opened my eyes to the power of passive income and the fact that you can get mailbox money and money while you sleep. And that just opened my eyes to a whole different world. This concept of financial freedom and time freedom, being able to spend time traveling or time with the family, watch the kids grow up. It's really real estate has opened my eyes to the possibilities. And, and that's really what I'm striving for now. Since you're also working on the active side of syndications as well, do you also continue to invest passively? I do. Yeah. And that's something I want to keep doing as well. Because while actively investing, being a general partner in these deals is all and it, it can be quite lucrative if it all goes well, it's still work. It's active work. I think ultimately, I want to be a passive investor. In the long run, it's the game is to be a passive investor, to be able to plant lots of trees and watch them grow and just continuously plant more investments because I think that's got to be the long game. And so what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? There are probably lots of things, but I think, yeah, I think passive income. I wish I'd started earlier because it does take a long time. This uh, metaphor of planting trees is a really good one, I think, because if you make lots of little investments, plant lots of little trees, in five, 10 years time, things will start to snowball and you'll see the benefits of it. I think every real estate investor says this, they wish they had started earlier. And so that's, that, that would have to be it for me. They always ask, when is the best time to buy real estate? It's like 10 years ago. When's the next best time? It's right now. <laughs> really? Totally true. And so then what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? I think it's mindset. It's mindset is everything. And I've really learned that over the last two or three years that you've got to have a positive mindset with this stuff. And the power of your thinking really determines your success. So a lot of people might be thinking, well, how could I ever buy a $26 million deal? But with that kind of thinking, you never will. So really, I've learned you've just got to think big and you can achieve big things. And the mindset is important every single day. It's something that you've got to keep reminding yourself about Keep reminding yourself about, stay focused on it every single day because it can be tiring. There are so many rejections, underwriting deals and never winning one. It can be hard, but if you've got that discipline and you keep going and a positive mindset, I think eventually 
if you're doing the right things, you'll get that success. How do you maintain your positive mindset? And how did you get to the point where you started to think bigger and started to believe that you could do a $26 million deal? Um, How did you get to that point? Right. I actually had a business coach who helped me a lot with mindset. I think they just gave me awareness of limiting beliefs. We've all got limiting beliefs. And the coach really showed me that we can overcome limiting beliefs. And every time I said something a little bit negative, they would challenge me and say, well, is that really the case? Or is that just your limiting belief? And 99 times out of 100, it was a limiting belief. It's very easy for them to creep in. But I guess through the coach and gaining awareness, you know, self-awareness is, is a huge first step. And then there are practices, just reminding yourself every day about what your goals are and what you've achieved so far. There's a book I read recently called The Gain and the Gap, I think. It's actually a really cool little concept about, do you think about how far you've come from a year ago? That's the gain. Or do you spend your time thinking about the gap, like what you're missing from where you want to be? And really, if you think about the gain, you're giving yourself positive reinforcement about, look at what I achieved and you know, you're on the right path. That's the place to spend your time. If you keep thinking about the gap, that's a negative thing. You know, I'm never going to get there or I really, you know, I'm not achieving things. So I think it all comes back to mindset and, you know, focusing on that positive frame of mind. And I think it really is a huge differentiator for for those that are successful in this space. I totally agree with that, Warren. For our listeners out there who are also interested in learning more about you, your story, and what you're doing in this space, where's the best place that they can go? Best place would probably be our website, which is equityyieldgroup.com. Go check out what we're up to. You can contact us and sign up for our investor list, our newsletter. That would be the best place. Awesome. Well, Warren, thank you so much for coming on the show. I I really enjoyed learning about, especially learning about the differences between Australia and the United States and seeing how... I guess there's not even a multifamily market in that space or you're not even capable of doing that. That's kind of mind-blowing because you think that stuff like this happens all around because buildings are everywhere, right? No, we're very lucky that we've got access (laughs) to kind of industry in this country. But thank you so much again for all of your insights today. Thanks for having me. It was fun. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.